In due season, I wanted to begin a series on God's standard for us, and I covered some issues that were kind of on the table and what God's standard in those is. But I want to broaden it and continue in that light today, uh, because I think this is important for us to understand truly and fully, if possible, what God expects of us and what standard there is for us in every aspect of life. Now, I want to point to the sermonette, first of all, starting out, that it was about Saul and the Amalekites, for some who might hear this tape a year or two or three from now, and we're here for the sermonette or on the telephone, and how God had told Saul and instructed him as king to destroy the Amalekites, man, woman, child, beast, everything, nothing to be left of them, even their animals. And you think, well, why kill the animals? You know, they don't hurt us, and they're worth something, aren't they? You can eat them. Why kill the animals? But that's what God wanted done. I think he was making a very important point. He wanted nothing left of those people on the earth that descended from them, even animals. They were such that he was consigning them to the great white throne judgment to come up later and have opportunity of salvation, but because of their juxtaposition against Israel and that they would be a thorn in the side for the people that he was working with at that time, he wanted them absolutely wiped out and forgotten, at least for several thousand years. But you know how human reasoning is. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And you know, the way we think and the way we want to do things does seem right to us sometimes. And if it comes in conflict with the Word of God, then we find a way around it, or we choose to ignore it, or we rebelliously clench our teeth and follow it anyway, or any one of several reactions when there's something of God that we don't like. That is human nature. That is raw human nature. And we have to be transformed from that, converted from that, and have our minds utterly changed so that we don't think the way we used to think. Now, the Amalekites were not willing to change the way they thought about Israel's God or Israel. And since they were in the way, they had to go away. Now, Saul and the Israelites agreed up to a point. But there came a point where they said, Hey, man, why should we waste the gold and the silver and the animals and, and all that stuff? Let's, let's keep this. They, they can't hurt us. There's human reasoning for you. Now, to them, God's logic did not make proper human logic. So, when we disagree with God's logic, sometimes we choose to ignore it. Now, you don't always have to understand what God is saying. All you have to do is know what he said and do it. Whether it appeals to your nature or your way of thinking, or your logic, or not. Because sometimes 
we may not have complete understanding of why God does something. And I think that that is a good example in point. They followed God's logic to a certain point, and then when it disagreed with their logic, they simply abandoned God's plain instructions. There was a rebelliousness that came out. Now, we don't like sometimes to be preached to or at, and we have various other ideas about how it should be conducted. But in connection with this, I want to point out at least one passage here in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Let's start in verse 6. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do to me. We put our trust, our confidence in God. We don't fear what man will do to us. Now, there is a great deal of fear in the world. There's a great deal of fear in the church because of the coming juggernaut of a one-world order and a world government and globalist politics and globalist military and all that. And we've read in Isaiah 8 over and over where it says, don't fear the conspiracy, fear me, says God, do what I say. And we find that followed up here in Hebrews 13, that if we go before God, we do the things he says to do, he will take care of us, and we don't need to fear what man will do to us. But we as human beings have trouble having faith in God. So we take all kinds of care to try to protect ourselves from men. Now, I know, I feel very certain that there will be one day that this village will be destroyed by the military of man. I have no doubt of that, because the scriptures seem to indicate it very clearly. I'm not worried about it, because God tells me what to do when I see the armies gathering about. To flee, and in what direction? People debate whether they should be here or not. Well, I'll tell you what the fate of this place is, if you need some confirmation that you might not should come here. That is, it's going to be wiped out. If we, as individuals, are doing what we are supposed to be doing, we will not be wiped out with it. On the other hand, those who are out there in the world will be wiped out and or taken captive there. So, I guess you can pick your poison. If you come here, you better believe in God. And if you don't, you better come to. Because this place is going to go away when the time is right. So don't fear man and what he'll do to us. Remember them which have the oversight, the rule, the guidance over you. Oof. That's the way it's always been, isn't it? All the way through the history of Israel, all the way through the church, God has put those in charge, whether it was kings or priests or judges or ministers or whatever. And it was still true in Hebrews 13, toward the end of the New Testament era of the church, that Paul is talking about those who have government positions in the church. 
who has spoken to you the word of God. So this isn't civil government, this is government in the church. Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conduct, because those who had been appointed were faithfully serving God, James, Peter, Timothy, uh, Silas, Apollos, you name them. Jesus Christ is saying yesterday and today and forever. The way he has done things, he will always do things, and he will always work through men as much as that rankles upon us sometimes. And it isn't so much always that it is men that bother us. It's just that it's not us who have the influence or the say. So we resent someone else being given a position or a direction or a commission. We want to be heard. And there is where the rub comes. The crisis is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Be not carried about with different and strange doctrines. And boy, are there a bunch of those going around today. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with foods, which have not profited them, which have been occupied therein. In other words, the animal sacrifices and so on are not necessary. They didn't really profit those people. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. So those who would bring animal sacrifices and animal blood are barking up the wrong tree. Those who would eat a lamb at Passover are barking up the wrong tree. It is a slap in the face to Jesus Christ to kill a lamb for Passover today. Those people who still live that way have no right to serve the tabernacle that we do. They do not have the new covenant. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. He was dirty with our sins and had to be outside the camp to die with those sins. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Now, he died for all sin of all mankind. And this story of Saul and the Amalekites also comes to play. We must get rid of all sin. That is God's standard for us. Anything that is contrary to God's way, His thinking, His word, has to go. Now, the Amalekites there was just a physical example where God was making a point that anything contrary to God has to die. It will not survive what is coming. And if we are contrary to God in this end-time age, we will not survive either. Money, silver, gold, none of those things are going to solve it, save us. The money will be thrown in the streets, and Scripture says the silver and the gold will be thrown in the streets. If you heat it so that you can chew it, it's too hot to swallow. And if you don't heat it, it's too hard to chew. It won't do us any good. Now, sometime down the road from now, when people have wheat and you have gold, do you think that they would be willing to trade you their wheat for your gold? 
not going to happen. It is food that is going to be in short supply. Oh, the silver and the gold may be okay for a little while, but there's going to come a time when it is totally valueless to people in this country. You won't buy anything because there isn't anything. We'll read more about that as we get into where I'm headed in a little while. But there's a, an, a, an extreme lesson for us with Saul and the Amalekites. That is, everything that is sinful has to go. Can't be tolerated. Now, some of you think that I sometimes take a hard line. Let's read on. He suffered without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Nothing here is going to last. It's going to be transitory. It's going to go away. We're seeking the heavenly city. And we're part of it if we be part of the bride of Christ. We are Zion and Jerusalem. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. This is what we need to do. Remember to do good, to communicate with each other. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. That's the kind of sacrifice he's looking for. Obey them that have the guide or the rule or the oversight over you and they do have it, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account. You see, the position that Gordon and Nelson and I, and even those who give sermonettes from time to time, are in, is that we must give account to God for you. I have to come to understand what God wants of me and what he wants of you, and I have to hold our feet to the fire as one that must give account. Let's say you work for someone, and he tells you this, this, and this must be done by the time I get back at 4 o'clock. And he is going to make you give account when he shows up at 4. If you were on coffee break till 3.30 and didn't get it done then you will be held accountable and may be fired. So, sometimes you need to have a little mercy and compassion instead of an attitude or a chip on the shoulder when instruction has to be given. Of course, there's where the rub comes. You don't think that instruction needed to be given, perhaps. But understand the position that those who are appointed to teach are in. A, they get double hard judgment, and B, they will be held account for you. Now, Jesus Christ himself mentioned that when he prayed to the Father there at the end of the book of John. I've lost none, Father, except the son of perdition, and that was foreordained that that would occur. But of the others, he lost none. See, he felt an accountability for his disciples. He felt he had to be accountable before the Father. And he felt it strongly enough that it was one of the key issues he brought up. Now, he is in the same position today with you and me. He will submit the names 
to his father of those he wants as his bride. And he will have to give account for each of us. Well, the father says, yeah, but what about such and such? It's okay, Dad, my blood covers that. His father will say, you're right. Because everyone that is on that list that Jesus Christ approves, the Father is going to approve because they're one and they see eye to eye and they don't disagree. They will know. They will agree. And you will be in or you will be out. And I will be in or I will be out. But I have a much harsher judgment than you do. So, even though you may chafe at times, understand that there is a job that has to be done and that God has appointed some to do it. And I don't always know why God appoints this one, that one, or the other one, and why he doesn't appoint someone else. That's his business. But he does what he does. And we need to learn to accept what God does. And if you don't think he's doing something here, then you need to go find a place where you think God is doing something. Now, be careful not to make the judgment, however, that God must be doing exactly what you think and only as you think. Because going out and finding someone who is teaching exactly everything you, te- you believe is going to be very, very difficult. Because there's probably not another human being on this earth, especially a minister, who agrees wholehearted with you on everything. See what I mean? Kind of hard to find. So sometimes you have to put up with some warts. I'm sorry. None of us are perfect. By any means. All of us struggle to be what we ought to be. I certainly do. Every day of my life, I, it is an absolute struggle. You're just not as human and carnal as I am, I don't think. Do you fight it as hard as I have to? Maybe, maybe you're sort of intrinsically good somewhere. I, I don't know. But I kind of doubt it. I think we're all in the same boat. We're all basically weak and base, and very, very few of you are noble. Uh, could I, maybe it would be best if we knew. Could I see the hands of those who are noble? Or maybe you just know someone who's noble. Could you raise your hand and tell me who it is? None of us are. We're all in the same boat, rowing with the same paddles, and through the same stuff. So, we need to understand that, and we need to grasp, you know, I'm not always right, brethren. I was wrong about some things for 50 years, and I'm having to change them. And it's not popular. You know, if we were in a popularity contest or a money and people contest, like a lot of the organizations are, we would not have changed Passover. That was a very, very unpopular move in terms of the rest of the church. The people who believe it, who agree with it, are few and far between. We're kind of the Paul Miller of the church in that sense. He's over there in Africa all by himself, the only one that believes it. 
that's within his reach at least. And as far as I know, we're the only organization on the earth in the church who believes the truth about the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. So it's not a popular move, not aimed at big numbers of people. It's aimed at finding the truth. And we've changed on a lot of things. There are things, if you go through all my sermons back the last ten years, you will find a lot of things about the new heavens and the new earth and about various issues that separate us from the rest of the church. The minor prophets, the rest of the prophets. Kind of the whole Bible, maybe, when you really boil it down. No, we're not here for any popularity of any kind other than with God. And how many people agree is neither here nor there. But it still has to be proclaimed, does it not? These things have to be taught, whether people like it or not. You see, knowledge is dangerous. If you have knowledge and you don't follow it, God will hold you accountable for it. And he is a consuming fire, and he will sterilize, he will purify. And if we don't purify ourselves, we're going to go through the heat of purification. That's just the way it boils down. There are those who would tell you that Christianity is easy. But through Christ, we have all the strength we need, and it's just not hard to keep the standards of God. I beg to differ. Narrow, straight, rugged, hard, steep, crooked is the way that leads to life. Broad is easy is the way that leads to destruction, in God's own words. I heard somebody says, well, if you people have some sickness and you have some trials and troubles around here, you must not be God's people. You must not be pleasing God. Well, maybe we aren't pleasing God as much as we ought to be, but on the other hand, he says, through much tribulation enter the kingdom of heaven, many are the afflictions of the righteous, and on and on. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? He felt the same pressures you and I feel. He looked upon himself as nothing. But then didn't God call Jacob a worm? See, we can't have an inflated idea of ourselves or our value. Until we're changed, we're not worth anything. Okay? We're, we're still worms. I'm not a butterfly. Still a worm. Worms are ugly and distasteful, and we step on worms, don't we? But butterflies we like, they're pretty. They flit around the flowers. But you've got to be a worm before you can be a butterfly. I was sort of casting that about in my mind a little bit this morning, just on a personal level. If I had to live forever as I am, I'll just pass. Thank you. Don't want it. Unless a change comes, I would not want to live the way I think, the way I act, the way I talk forever, knowing that it wasn't up to the standard of God. He is here, 
and I am here. And to live forever with that disparity would be miserable, especially if you were in a position where you could see him, talk to him, and always feel inadequate, always feel lesser, always feel guilty. No, thank you. I want no part of that. Now, there's where faith enters the picture. We must somehow come to believe that God is capable of changing everything about us so that we are just like Him. And we have to have that faith now and be working in that direction. Otherwise, if we don't want it badly enough, to make the effort to be transformed and changed now, he is not going to be willing to grant it to us. That's why he says, to those that overcome will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Anything that is worth having is worth working for. Now, we're not going to be saved by our works or the good things we do. They can be treasure in heaven if we don't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Otherwise, our reward is now. Praise of men and praise of self. But we have to comprehend that God put us here to learn to be what we ought to be and to work at it. It is a practice ground. It's like boot camp in the army. Their goal is to turn you into an efficient fighting machine. And they put you through a great deal of work and pain and misery and education to bring you there. And God is essentially doing the same thing with us. This is a tough time. Not easy. Wasn't intended to be easy. But the encouraging part is it will be over before too long. And our change will come. If we die soon, it'll come in the next split second. If we live through to the end of this thing, probably only a few years left. So in either case, it's a split second or a few years. It isn't very far off. So is it worth it? Do we believe him? And how do I bolster that belief? Because we can begin to think and go through the thing like I was this morning, analyzing myself and feeling very sick about myself and saying, what's the use? Why try? Why work so hard at it and never seem to be able to make much progress, it seems? It's difficult. So how do I get from that attitude to one of faith and trust to know that things are going to be better in the morning? Romans 1 gives us the answer. There it says that the unseen things of God are seen in his creation. So what I have to do sometimes, fairly frequently, I try to do it fairly often, is back off and look at what God has made. Think about the flowers and the butterfly. 
Think about the deer and the elk and the trees and the grass. Think about the good things that grow in the garden. Think about peach off of a tree or a raspberry off a vine. Things that I truly enjoy. Fresh tomato right off the vine. Eat it right there. How did those things come to be? How did this earth and the rain and the clouds, the beauty that we find all over this earth, come to be? So I have to put my trust and my confidence in a being who was able to do that. And when I look around at what he has done, I have to marvel and think, if he could do that out of nothing, and he could make me out of nothing, wretched as I am, I'm still a miracle standing here. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. To make a human being out of dirt was an incredible accomplishment. You don't have to look beyond the creation of your own self to see that there has to be someone, somewhere in the universe, of incredible capacity, power, might, planning ability, love, concern. Think of the loveliest things that you can imagine and enjoy and appreciate on this earth. In relationships, in communing with nature, whatever. And understand there is a mastermind who had to do that and could do that. And there are minds on this earth that are bent on destroying everything that God has made and bent on destroying society and making peasants out of all of us. It's the mind of Satan working through men. Which way are you going to go? Now, can you walk in faith and follow every instruction that that master being has given? It's a matter of coming to the point that you believe there is a God with all your heart and therefore believe that he knows the best way to live. And that in most cases, it will be absolutely contrary to the way you think. Because the human carnal mind is enmity against God. It is deceitful and desperately wicked and is contrary to God in every way. Since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, man's mind has been rebellious ever since. Seeking a different path than that which God would give. That's why the road to righteousness is difficult and hard. Because our minds do not naturally go God's way. They have to be changed. They have to be forced. And we have to have help or we can't do it. Now, that's the introduction to this next section. Now, let's go to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, what do you suspect, based on your knowledge of the Old Testament? Okay, before we read this, what do you think John might have been preaching? Think, let the, let the whole Old Testament go through your mind quickly. And what was preached and taught by the prophets 
of God in the past. What would God come preaching? Verse 2, came in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent you, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nothing changed from the Old Testament prophets to the beginning, the precursor, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, and what he would be preaching. The message for mankind ever since Adam and Eve has always been repentance, change. Don't go your way, go God's way. That's what he preached and taught to ancient Israel. That was the covenant he offered them. Obey God, do everything God says, and you'll have blessings and not cursings. And, of course, they went the other way. So all the prophesying, all the, all the prophesying, all the preaching had to do, basically, with repentance of going the wrong way and turn around and go God's way. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene to prepare the way for Christ... That is the message he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That pretty well sums it up. Change the way you think. Change the way you are. Change the things you say. Think, change the things you do. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it is the doers of the word who will be justified and glorified, not the hearers. It's that simple. Thank you very much. See you next week. Ah, better not stop there. Let's go on. Verse 8, Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And he says in verse 11, I baptize you with water to repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Sweet Jesus. Does the Protestant world have the right view of Jesus Christ? Charles, would you mind? Oh, I guess Nelson just left out. He went to turn the lights on. We've got clouds coming over for you that aren't here, and it blocks our light. We need artificial. There. Those who have eyes to see now. Jesus Christ is coming with power and fire and to purify. There is a standard that has been set. And that standard must be met or else. Okay? Then comes Jesus, verse 13, from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and come you to me. And Jesus answering said to him, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. So then John the Baptist agreed in baptizing. Christ had to do everything that was a righteous thing that needed to be done. John could understand that. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Now, it came gently, like a dove in this case. In uh, Acts 2, when it first came to the church, Pentecost, it came as tongues of fire. Very dramatic thing as opposed to this very gentle situation. Perhaps Christ did not need the drama that we need. 
He already believed. He already understood. He already knew. And a, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not proud. God is not proud. But he was very well pleased. I'm not going to go through all the temptation that Christ went through uh, with the devil here. But we know the story and know that he defeated Satan. Did not give in to the temptations of Satan. And they were very difficult ones. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He was offered bread, offered food. He was offered power. He was offered a lot of things. And no, I live by every word of God. That was his answer. To live by every word of God. Now there's the example of Jesus the Christ who had the answer. An answer that Satan could not get around. Live by every word of God. There are no words in here that we dare let fall to the floor. We must keep every word of God. To do that, we must be reminded of them. We must study them. We tend to focus sometimes on certain things and a lot of other things fall off the table. We can't afford to do that. Prophecy is important because prophecy is about repent ye for the kingdom of God is at hand. But when it comes right down to it, the most important thing is conduct, how we conduct our lives, how we manage our lives and our thoughts. Of course, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand has to do with conduct, doesn't it? So it's all about studying all these words. Now, after Satan was defeated by Christ, Christ began his ministry. Let's go to verse 17 of Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach. I wonder what his message was. Was his message, be baptized, born again, and by the grace of God you're saved? From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preached exactly the same thing John the Baptist had been preaching. John, the, well, John was the forerunner of that, and Christ then came in reality and preached the same message. Then come a few verses showing how he called his disciples from being fishermen, tax collectors, and so on. Verse 22, they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. They left family, they left their jobs, their employment, their professions, committed themselves entirely to follow Jesus Christ. It became a way of life. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he showed some of the benefits of the kingdom by doing a lot of healings among the people. Verse 24, and his fame went throughout all Syria, and from Syria they brought to him all sick people that were taken with different diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils and insane, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea. And from beyond Jordan, people came in droves by the thousands to this man who was healing and who was preaching the kingdom of God. Probably tens of thousands coming from all those areas. That's a wide range of geography. Even from Syria, 
all over. He had compassion. He healed them. He gave a broad, general teaching about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But notice something very, very important here when we get to the, what they call, Sermon on the Mount. And seeing the multitudes, all these thousands of people coming from all over the place, seeing the multitudes, what did he do? He sat right down there and waited for those multitudes to come, and he gave this sermon to all those thousands of people. Every movie you have ever seen come out of Hollywood shows it just like that. That he was there to teach those masses of people. Not what happened. Seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain. He said, I'm out of here. He left thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people and went up into the rocks and the mountains and got away from them. That doesn't make a very good movie, but that's the way it happened. And when he was set, he found a place, probably was in better shape than the disciples. He beat them up the mountain. When he was set, the disciples came to him. Not thousands of people, just those disciples he had called. Why? Why didn't he give this to everybody? It would have been cheap. I mean, it didn't cost him anything. He could have sat up on a high place on a rock, had those people spread below, and he could have spoken to thousands of them. Or better yet, for acoustics, he could have stayed down low and had the people all get up above him because mountain sound carries up a mountain. He wouldn't have needed amplification. He could have preached to thousands and thousands of people and they could have all have heard him quite nicely. Could have done it that way. If he was here to save the world, I would think he would have done it that way. His job wasn't to save the world at that time. He's coming back to do that, but it's not his job right now. It wasn't his job then. His job was to train disciples and offer them a new covenant. Something that would start very, very small with these twelve and grow. Pentecost Acts 2 began to grow dramatically there for a short while. Then a falling away occurred. No, what he's doing here is putting the multitudes aside, sitting down with his disciples, and giving them a new covenant, a new agreement. And if you will, a new standard. Now, he had started out in a general way preaching the gospel of repentance. He had healed some folks. He had shown that he was the Son of God, not only to them, but to the disciples themselves. So he had some credibility with them at this point. Now, if he had sat down with them the first day he called them off the boat and given them what is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7... They might have gone back to the boat. But instead, he had a period of time where he did some healings. He showed through very dramatic ways that he was the Son of God. Now, who was he trying to convince? Mainly his disciples. And you'll find all the way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that they had trouble grasping it, grasping it all the way through. 
He'd have to keep asking them, well, who do you think I am? Why do you think this was done? How did the fishes get divided? <laughs> you know, he, he, continually he had to ask them questions. And they still didn't get it. Came the night of the Passover, and when he would be betrayed, taken, killed the next day, they still didn't get it. Couldn't grasp truly who he was and what he was doing and what their part was. So they had to argue that very night about who was the greatest among them. And the greatest among them was sitting there trying to teach them what it was all about. Didn't matter. He was the greatest. They just wanted to know among themselves, apart from him, who was the greatest. We all like to have a high opinion of ourselves, and sometimes it comes out in our relationship with others. That's human nature. That's normal. But is it right? All right? We have here a prenuptial marriage covenant. He gives us the standard in this teaching right here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 of what we must be to be his bride. Now, the world and Protestants look upon this as a very sweet three chapters where Christ gave wonderful, wonderful attitudes for us to be in, and they call it the Beatitudes. They miss the point. They miss what this will require. They miss seeing the incredible standard that Christ set down. Now, this particular sermon, if you want to call it a sermon, that's what it's called. It was a teaching at any rate, where he, they sat before him and he taught them. He was set, they came to him, he taught them, okay? That's the way it was. It is the fulcrum. It is the balance point between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It summarizes the Old Testament and everything written in the New Testament springs from this particular day's teaching. The principles, even some of the very words that were in this particular teaching session, you will find throughout the New Testament. These principles will be brought out over and over by James, Peter, John, Paul, and so on. This is the balance point. This is the standard set by Jesus Christ for his disciples in the first recorded time that he sat down directly to teach just them. And they were to be the founders, through him, of the early New Testament church that has existed until today. And the standard set here is the standard for all time. will never be remanded, will never be changed, it will always be throughout all eternity. Because this is what God is. This is what God thinks. This is how God wants his people to think. It is the ultimate standard. It interprets the law. It brings greater understanding to it and gives a principle for every technicality of Moses' law, some of which things are not physically necessary to do today, 
like circumcision, as Paul clearly explains, and other things. But there is always a spiritual substitute for those physical things. Christ is the sacrifice. Those sacrifices were only a shadow. It's another reason we simply do not need to keep a Passover lamb or a Passover meal that night. Christ is the Lamb of God. Anything less than that is nothing. And it is a slap in his face to try to put meaning on a physical lamb when he is the Lamb of God. The shadow is gone. The reality is here. All right. What is God's standard for us then? What must we live up to in order to be the bride of Christ and to be kings and rulers in the world tomorrow and rule the entire world? There's a new world order coming. It will be a global, international movement. And it will not be run by the Illuminati or by the Council on Foreign Relations or the Masonic Lodges. It will be run by Jesus Christ you and me. That's what the New World Order is all about. Now, there is a false New World Order that is rearing up its head right now because it is Satan's last-ditch last attempt to rule the world. He has been disqualified by Christ, Matthew 4, and he knows his days are short, and if he is going to rule the world, he has to do it now. And he has aligned these organizations and these men to take over the rulership of the world, to destroy most of mankind, and to have the elite rule. Now, isn't that exactly what God is going to do? It is a master counterfeit of God and his plan and purpose. God is going to have one ruler, God the Father, under whom Jesus Christ and his bride of 144,000 rule the entire earth. Everyone else will be, if you would put it in today's parlance, peasants. Because God will rule. And there will be no other organization, no other nation, no other government, no military, no nothing allowed. God will rule with a rod of iron. Now, Satan has got people set up to rule this earth with a rod of iron. And it is almost upon us. I was reading an article last night about the national identification plan supposed to go into effect by 2008 so that you will have your identity stamped in such a way that you can be identified electronically. And they also have a plan for global identification, whereby you go through an airport, they'll have a scanner for either your wrist, your forehead, or your iris, or your fingerprint, and they will know exactly who you are. And you can't travel, you can't do anything, unless you have that identification. You ready for it? You want to be able to travel? You want to be able to drive a car? You want to be able to have a job? Let's see, this is 2006, it's nearly half over now. 2008 is only a year and a half away. Are you prepared 
to have that stamp so that you can still go to Walmart. Let's put this in the simplest terms. That even we might understand. Do you want to go to Walmart in a year and a half from now? If they do this as proposed, by that time you will not be able to. I'm already receiving stuff in the mail whereby they want to have an identifying chip in every chicken, every turkey, every goat, every cow, every parakeet, I suppose. It's coming. They want absolute, total control. Now, the difference in their plan and God's plan is who will be in charge. In Satan's plan, you're going to have selfish, greedy, ruthless rulers. In God's plan, you're going to have loving, kind, gentle, merciful, loving teachers, supervisors, kings, and priests. A mother, if you will, for the world who loves her children. Now, the church is supposed to be a microcosm of Jesus Christ and his bride. Ephesians 5 makes that very, very plain. That our marriages should depict the marriage of Jesus Christ to his bride. And his bride is the church. So, your relationship between husband and wife is supposed to be the same as between Christ and his bride. A very loving, gentle, kind, sweet, and yet controlled circumstance and relationship. With each submitting to one another, as Ephesians 5 says, but the wife, when there is a contention, submitting to the husband. It's the way God set it up. Just like we, as the bride of 144,000, if there is ever a question, will submit to Jesus Christ. It's the way it's supposed to be. He'll submit to us, we'll submit to him. But any time there's a question, we bend to his will. That's the way it's supposed to be. You and I are running around in circles trying to get it that way and coming far short of it far too often. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, here's the kicker. We see corrupt greedy, jealous, selfish people today trying to rise to the top in Satan's system. And we despise it and hate it. But it falls on you and me as the few called out ones in this end time to be rulers of the world in the right way. Therefore, we simply cannot have any selfishness, any greed, any jealousy, any envy, any wrong anger, bitterness, clamor, fighting, warring among ourselves. There is no room for that. No room whatsoever. That's the hard part. The God is training a mature, holy, perfect, giving, loving people to rule the world. And we are candidates to be those rulers.
It's awesome when you think about it. All those people out here in this world with all their machinations and their plans and everything to rule this world are going to be torn to pieces by Jesus Christ. And he will come riding on a white horse flecked with blood. He's coming first to take us for a honeymoon of a year, and then we'll come back with him, and he'll be riding that horse then of war and his saints with him to take over the rulership of the world. These ancient societies that have been plotting and planning this, along with the central bankers and our rulers in Washington, are going to get it right in the neck. We're to be the saviors, brethren. That's the bottom line, along with Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, but we are to be there to help him save. Is it worth it? You want to rule? You want power? You want to say? You got a chance. Got a beautiful opportunity. Called of God. Now, what's it going to take? What is the standard? He opened his mouth, verse 2 of Matthew 5, and taught them, not the multitude, he taught them, his disciples who had come to him. So this is just for us. This is just for the called out ones. This isn't for the world. This covenant is not offered to them. That's why he made the separation here. It's just for us. Those that he taught and those that, and th those that would be taught by them. And we are in that category because he has brought down the teaching of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter, and, uh, and others for us today. So they, they are dead, but they're still teaching us because God has preserved it right here. Okay? So the things that Christ taught them that day, they repeated for us. It was all written down and preserved so that we would have the opportunity to study the manual for world rule. We represent the true New World Order. Why should we fear the New World Order of Satan when Christ has defeated him already? And you know who, Christ, who Satan is going to come after the minute he is cast down to this earth? Us will be his first, main, and really only target. Satan, the devil, is going to target you and me personally. Mr. Armstrong used to ask the question, is have trouble in the church? Has Satan been cast down? Some, every once in a while someone comes to me and says, you know, time of trouble in their lives or time of trouble in the church or whatever. Do you think Satan's been cast down? No. No, hadn't happened. This is just the normal stuff. This is just stuff he'll try to lay on us. When he's cast down, there will be no question. He is going to amass an army, and they're going to come upon the remnant, the settlement of God's people, where God has gathered his remnant together, and he is going to try to militarily destroy all the faithful remnant of God in one fell swoop. One battle. 
and he will not delay. He's there accusing us before the throne of God today. And he will do that as long as he is permitted to. He will take your faults, your thoughts, your actions to the Father and the Son and accuse us of being ungodly. And the only way that we have any chance of surviving that accusation is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that our sins and our weaknesses can be pardoned and forgiven and God can say, hey, wait a minute, maybe that person still has some difficulties, but he prayed to me this very morning and my son's blood covered it. So back off. Well, Satan just waits and watches you for a second or two till the next bad thought comes. Then he goes right back. Maybe I'm pushing it. Maybe it's an hour or two. I don't know. A day or two. Whatever. I speak from personal experience. You know, you're different. But he's always there. Constantly accusing you and me. That's his main thing right now, is accusing you and me. And his second main thing is preparing the world for his global government and our destruction. So when God says, I've had it with you up here, do not ever come back, he will immediately head to the earth, gather his army, and come after us if we're part of the faithful remnant. And we will flee and escape by the skin of our teeth if we don't turn back in our houses to get something or decide to drive instead of walk or whatever. Got to go get the car keys. Too late. Or if our attitude is not right and we're not accounted worthy, we'll fall and break our leg, as I've said before, and everyone else will go on and we will be left behind to be destroyed. It is about righteousness. It is about spiritual maturity. It is about doing what God wants done. That's what it's all about. And if we're not doing that, he will make a separation. He will divide between the clean and the unclean. It is my responsibility to teach and make a difference between the clean and the unclean, as Haggai makes very clear for the end-time church. And you must make a determination in your own mind, of that which is unclean in your mind and heart, and get rid of it. Otherwise, God will ultimately make a judgment, and no matter how badly you want to go, you won't be there. Just like when the first resurrection comes. If you've not been chosen to be resurrected, you can jump all you want, but you won't get off the ground more than a foot or two. It just won't happen. God's judgment. He will decide who rises and who does not rise. He will decide who goes to a place of safety and who does not. Being in a certain place and having it all figured out at the right time will not get you there. It will be, have we lived up to the standard? Have we come to living the prenup agreement as laid out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and corroborated before that in the Old Testament and in the rest of the New Testament? That's where it will be. I think rather than getting into the details now of what that standard is, I'll wait till next week. This is basically a second introduction into this series 
but there's an awful lot that is important. You might study Matthew 5, 6, and 7 since you know where we're going next week, God willing. Uh, and think about a lot of these things because it will make it more real as we get into it because we're going to talk about what God really, truly expects of us. And he lays it out pretty clearly here. So let's stop there and pick it up next week. See you then, God willing.